But billion, a billion dollars is a lot. That'd be sweet, Spicy though. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm going to write a vampire book. That's probably hasn't been saturated okay. yet, right? No, guys, she's not a billion dollars. She's worth $120 million, which is a pretty good amount, I would say, still, for uh, being an author that wrote a bunch of vampire books. Like, pretty awesome. More than Jay Cutler and yeah, less than Phil okay. Collins. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> wow. Hello, and thank you for tuning into to this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. We are a group of authors actively honing our craft while encouraging each other and our audience to just keep writing. We each have a project on the go, so we take turns reading each other's newest drafts and discussing them here. My name is Pat. I'm Jess. And I'm Lance. If you would like to read along, you can find some of our latest work posted on patreon.com slash wgbcpodcast. If you take the time to post your feedback on our subreddit, r slash WGBC podcast, we will take the time to read it and may even feature some of our favorites in the show, which we will get into right after this quick sponsored message. Buying a house has been a nightmare these last couple of years. With houses priced for bidding wars, social distance friendly 10 minute showings, and the expectations for unconditional offers at the very top of your budget, the last thing you want is a realtor that you can't trust or that just shows up and unlocks the door with no prep work. I've had a couple realtors in my house hunt that have kept me out of the market until a recent career change forced me to get back in. Foster Jackson is a realtor working out of the GTA, where he was born and raised. He's lived inside and out of the city, knows the market, and literally worked night and day to help my family find a house in a market that met our budget. He was transparent and professional, and never tried the old, you better put in your best offer trick. I can honestly say, working with Foster, I have come to a deal that I have no buyer's remorse on, which has got to be rare here in June 2022. If you are looking to buy a rent in the Greater Toronto area, give Foster a call and see what he can do for you. His contact info is in the episode description. Hi everyone, Lance here. I asked Pat and Jess uh, what they th- thought I should talk about during, um, during the podcast today. And they asked me to talk about world building. I have an interesting relationship with world building because I think it's really cool, but I also think it's overemphasized a bit much. And I think that it should take a backseat in general to plot and characters. So uh, for instance, I'm trying to write in the fantasy genre, um, which is a genre that is by definition defined by the setting. Um, it, if you think of fantasy, you're thinking of a specific type of setting. It's not a character arc or a plot arc. It's a setting arc, but yet even in fantasy setting should always take a backseat to plot and characters because plot and air plot and characters make books interesting. If you have a book with a generic setting, but good plot or generic setting and good characters, you're still going to have a pretty good book. But if you have a book with flat characters and a boring plot in a really cool setting, it's probably still not going to be great. There may be exceptions to this rule though. Uh, So I think when people love setting, they often, they might like characters and plots that the author has written. And then they're kind of looking and saying, wow, these characters and plots were so cool. Look at this undiscovered space on the rest of the map at the back of the book. Imagine all the cool characters and plots that are there. So you you might be thinking of the setting because you're looking at a map, but you might be extrapolating or you might be like 
you know, putting in similar quality characters and plots that the author has into a setting. Now, this isn't always the case, and there are definitely settings that are really cool, and I really love settings, so I really want to get into it. I just want to just start off by saying you can't write an encyclopedia. Encyclopedias in the real world are really useful and contain lots of really critical information to doing stuff, but nobody reads them because they're super boring. So nobody's going to read an encyclopedia about a made-up world that has information that's not useful. So um, that being said... I think when you're coming up with your setting, you need a solid five ideas, give or take. You're writing a whole book. We need a lot of ideas. And you can't just have one really cool setting idea. You can, but you should try to come up with a couple more. I think for me, I want to look at how get, I want to try to get like five cool setting ideas. These can be simple or complicated. And then the intersection between those different ideas are what's going to make my story really cool and unique. Uh, so for instance, if my story has muskets and my story has the jungles of the Beni province in Bolivia, those two things by themselves are not necessarily cool, but the intersection points between those, like what could you do with muskets in the Amazon rainforest that you couldn't do elsewhere or that would be better uh, or that would be better there than elsewhere is where the cool parts of your story come in and your the cool parts of your setting come in. One thing that gets mentioned, I've heard authors talk about it, and I think it comes from a Hollywood term, is called the strange attractor. The strange attractor is uh, is a term that people use apparently for a setting that is for for settings that are the strange part is it's just weird enough that we're interested, but the attractor part is it's familiar enough it's familiar enough that we can relate to it. So we definitely want our setting to be different so that it's cool. But we also want it to be relatable. It can't just be way so far out there that people have nothing to latch onto. Again, though, write the story you want to write. If you want to write a crazy story, just go ahead and do it. No, nothing's stopping you. Um, I think it's important to draw on what you know, because what you know, even if you don't think you know anything interesting, you know, if you're going to take your fantasy setting and then you can take something that you're familiar with in our world and apply those principles or or uh, or whatever to to your fantasy world. So uh, like Jess mentioned, archaeology, for instance, for herself in the last podcast when I was re-listening to it, uh, something that she clearly knows a bit about because it was a big part of her book. And then you can just apply the lessons you know from archaeology to your book that takes place in a made-up place. So a couple of things you could do are geography, geology, history, languages, astrology, uh, maps, sports, food, sailing, martial arts, farming, and basically any hobby, any pastime or profession, you know, may, maybe, maybe writing Excel spreadsheets isn't really applicable in a medieval fantasy, but you know, and a lot of these different things are going to be really applicable. And then you can take those and say, well, my story might be taking place in the, the, the Amazon jungle. How can I apply what I know about food to that? So what spices would they grow there, for instance? And you can go really into depth on that. When you have depth into one, and that's, uh, well, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, is readers really like depth. So if, I think you should go for depth of, of a few things in your setting rather than breadth, rather than width and a lot of different things, but not going into depth on any of them. I think that if you suppose you go really, really in depth on the food, 
and what spices that could grow here and all the difficulty you go through to import other spices and how these mix with this and this dishes and whatever. And maybe you really are into that. And then people are going to say, wow, this book is so detailed on the food. When you mention something else offhand, like the geology, you might say this rock formation jetted out of the ground and then you give a couple colors and then you just leave it. Those people are going to assume that the reader will assume because of the amount of depth that you put into the food, that depth also exists in other parts of your world as well. So they'll be like, oh yeah, that's silicone rock with, you know, basalt or silicate rock. I'm not sure. I'm not, not a big geology guy. Um, but then they, they will, they'll say the author did their homework. We can give them the benefit, give him or her the benefit of the doubt in other areas as well. So I definitely recommend going into depth and using things you already know. Uh, I think you definitely need to research. If you're not an expert on the topic that you're writing about, you don't need to become one, but you at least need to read five or 10 minutes of the Wikipedia page before you start writing. Uh, or for instance, maybe your book's about war and you have characters that show down and one character is an ax and one character is a spear and they're gonna have a big fight. Don't just write that scene. Go to YouTube, type in spear versus ax fight and watch it. And then you can see what kind of moves they're going to use. Almost nobody will notice, but someone is going to be an expert on that and is going to watch it. And when they read it, it's the difference between them saying, this is unbelievable. This is terrible. Or the difference of them saying, this is plausible. You don't need to be an expert, but the difference between something being plausible and something not being plausible is a huge difference. And I think that's what you're researching for. There's uh, two different kinds of settings, in my opinion. There's cultural setting, which is the human setting. And then there's physical setting, which is what would exist even if the humans weren't there. I think you need a few ideas for each of these. So you can come up with any number of these, um, you know, like flora and fauna and and, astro and the astronomy, astrology, I guess would be a human thing. Uh, and and the, the map and all that would be physical. And the human side would be like, what kind of food do they like? What kind of rituals and dances do they do? What's their music like? What's their form of governance? What's their currency, etc.? I guess actually astronomy versus astrology would actually be a good, good example here for what exists in nature without humans. And then what have humans, what meaning have humans ascribed to those things? I think you want to pick your few things. And again, just go into depth on those things. And that will give an illusion of depth for your book that makes it seem believable. Definitely don't write an encyclopedia though. Don't pick a hundred things and go into depth on all of them. Pick what's important, what's relevant to your story. I think once you've come up with your world, um, you know, you do this while you're coming up with your characters and your plots. But once you've come up with your world, I would say go it up to like five people, family members or friends or colleagues or whatever. And just explain to them how the world works, cultural and physical setting in just five or 10 minutes. And don't be defensive when they are confused, bored, or have questions. Because they're going to find really obvious things that don't make sense. And then you can fix them once they've told you. Uh, and if they're con if everyone's confused when you tell them, that means you need to work on, on explaining it or making it more plausible. But it's just it's a good to it's just a good exercise to talk to a couple of people and you'll definitely want to be defensive when you hear their comments back, but you don't have to be. Um, and it's just it's just going to help you to just iron out things that are really obvious and easy to fix. I think when you're working on your setting, you need to ask basic questions. Like um, I'll just give a couple here, but really just ask a base, basic questions about how the world works. Like for economics, how do people get paid? 
what do they use for money? What are barriers towards like economic movement up and down? What level of technology is there? What level of innovation is there? Or why is there no technological innovation? Why is it stagnant? What kind of clothes do people wear? How, um, how does the government protect their own interests? Um, logistics, like how do people get around? Do, how did they get nuclear stuff for their space, for their spaceships or what pack animals do they use? Those are actually basically fundamentally trying to solve the same problem. Um, and then you want to just think, well, just like regular, how does stuff happen? Um, and just ask yourself basic questions. Uh, for my book, Two Moons, Part One, uh, my ideas were, my big ideas were uh, astronomy and astrology of these two moons that were rotating around the Earth. That took a lot of research because I wasn't very familiar with the topic. Uh, I wanted to have muskets and I wanted the plants to be really cool and important uh, and magical. And I wanted, and I had a really, I had a specific idea for language and how I wanted the language groups and evolution um, to, uh, to, to, um, to exist on the world. But you're not, don't be married to your ideas because you might have something cool now, but it might get cooler as you think more about your book. Uh, what was important for me is letting my character arc ideas mold what I thought about the setting. For instance, um, one of the characters that that inspired someone in my book was, uh, there's a, there's three historical characters that inspired characters in my book. One is Jan Jishka, who was a 15th century general. And, uh, and I wanted to use the, some of his warfare techniques in my book, even though it's not super duper book of war. I thought that part of, uh, that part was really cool and it would work in my book. Uh, King Moshwe of Lesotho, uh, was another inspiration for one of the characters. And because of that, I needed to have a mountain plateau. And the, of course the country of Lesotho is an enormous plateau. That's a whole country. And in my book, the plateau is the size of two football fields, but, uh, it's, it's, that's just where I got an idea. And then the third person that was inspiration um, from the real world was a, a general from the seventh century, I think, called Khalid, Khalid ibn al-Walid, who crossed an impenetrable desert to, um, to catch an enemy unaware. Uh, and that character did a similar thing in my book, or the character was, that person was inspiration for someone in my book who did a similar thing. So I needed that impenetrable barrier. And I didn't even, and then um, I didn't even know what biome I was going to have yet. So what I did is I love drawing maps and I draw maps all the time. So I drew the absolute basics of what I needed. I drew a coastline, a mountain range, a big river. And then I knew I needed an impenetrable barrier. So what I did was I drew all different types of biomes with that same structure. I drew a desert with little oases. I drew a jungle which, uh, with, uh, with little hill towns, which is what I went with in the end. I drew a generic 15th century English countryside. Uh, and, I, and I went through and I drew all these different biomes that I thought could, would work. And then I chose which one was the coolest one uh, based on a lot of factors and the map was one of them. Uh, so um, the jungle of uh, Biranj in my book is a really important part of the setting in my book. And I was reading a book that mentioned a similar jungle in Bolivia. And uh, and um, so I kind of went from there and I was thinking, well, the, the Amazon rainforest, mountain range next to it. And then I remembered I have a character who needs a who needed to go into a mountain plateau at one point. So I could already find intersection points between my characters, my plot and my setting even before I started writing 
way before I started writing, just in the planning phases and just when I was coming up with my setting. So I was actually using the setting and my points about the setting to enhance the character and plot arcs. That's one of the reasons I plan out ahead a lot is because I file I find that for for my discover for my process, it helps me have the coolest outcome. Um, but I'd say at the end, you got to make sure your story is plausible. Ray said to do lots of research. You should, if you're going to have a map in your book, which is very common in fantasy books, uh, make sure you just do some basic research. How do mountains form? They form when tectonic plates crash together. How do rivers form? Rivers form because water collects in mountains and then flows down towards, uh, towards bodies of water. Rivers never split, but they do come together. How do continents form? It's because some, con- some tectonic plates are lighter than others, so they rise to the top. And how do islands form? Uh, it's almost usually at the intersection. It's almost always at the intersection of tectonic plates. Uh, so just have fun with world building. It's so fun. And um, it's one of my favorite parts of writing. But just remember that it should take a back seat to plot and characters. Um, because uh, it, it's, it's, it's just not always, it's just not going to be as important to readers feeling involved in your story as the plot and characters. One final thing I'll touch on. I haven't had time to talk about magic or scientific technology, which uh, are very similar for, pers- for narration purposes. But um, Brandon Sanderson has three laws of magic. And the laws are, uh, and um, I have them written down here. Um, the laws are that your, your magic users, the ability of your characters to solve problems with magic is directly proportional to how much the reader understands the magic, AKA you can't bail out your characters with magic. The reader has to understand the magic. Uh, limitations are cooler than strengths is rule number two. And rule number three is you should go deeper rather than wider. So explore the consequences of the magic rather than just starting new magic systems. But of course, always remember that the rule of cool, always do what is cool. Um, So now I want to ask my co-podcast mates uh, a question. Can you think of any story where the setting is actually cooler and uh, to then the plot and the characters, and it was a success. I can think of one. What do you think? I can maybe think of one, but this is controversial. It's maybe a bit of a hot take. Let's hear it. I think a series of unfortunate events had a super cool plot and setting. And I mean, just because there are so many books the characters kind of did the same thing all the time and they didn't necessarily grow that that is young adult writing in a way but I was talking about this tonight it's set kind of in like a steampunk world like you were talking about the strangeness of it there's not necessarily magic but there's like a lot of coincidences that happen there seems to be like the hand of magic happening in the background and every time they go to a different place it rings true to the entire setting of the story, but it's very unique. And like you were saying, Lance, like different microbiomes, like there's one where it's a hospital. There's another one where they're kind of like in the woods at this like wood mill. There's one where it's set in this person's like a big mansion, the reptile room. Yeah. So I was maybe going to have an example of that, that book series i i'm always going to use movies for mine because i like movies but um so her is mine i don't know if you guys ever watched that i don't know yeah i've seen that one yeah it's uh so the story is like a simple love story 
I mean, they, they add in the element that she's like a operating system or whatever, but the setting is super neat. Like they're all kind of wearing like sort of fifties clothes. It's a futuristic setting. And then there are all their jobs are like these super obscure kind of arts inspired jobs. And without even discussing really anything about the setting or even like what year it is or whatever, like they don't seem to have like crazy flying cars. They use trains and and whatnot. But um, you're like, oh, I wonder if there's some kind of like universal basic income that all these people are just like following their dreams or like they all kind of live in these uh this exact same apartment with no like flashy bells and whistles like wonder what that's all about and they never bother to explain any of that do you know what's interesting about that pat is that it's not spoon feeding the viewer or the person that's reading it's not spoon feeding you the world building you're kind of asking questions about it and that's okay too just as oh, long you're as totally like, on your own it's but it's yeah. a really interesting world that they've obviously thought through and planned and have some kind of vision for mm. but that's like like lance said like completely secondary to the story which is very good but also very simple mm-hmm. what's your example lance i'm curious jurassic park oh because it's not a comment on the characters or the plot. The characters are and the plot are, are good. It's a sweet movie. But I also think that no matter what the characters or the plot were, it was going to be awesome because it's, it's, it's dinosaurs in a fucking theme park. That's true. <laughs> it's just awesome. <laughs> I love that movie. This is another one. Guys, you're like, you're friggin' sticking these knives in my heart. Like last week it was Sahara now it's friggin' Jurassic Park. We're like... not attacking Jurassic Park. I said it's literally the only thing I could think of where the setting was so cool that I actually don't care about the plot and characters. Mm, true. Okay, that's interesting. I guess Jurassic Park is just Frankenstein. What if Jurassic Park was a heist movie? It's the Pokemon Wait. movie. <laughs> <laughs> they even in the newer Jurassic Park, movie? not the newest one, but the the first one, uh, the first one with. Um, Mewtwo, they even like have the exact same line. They're like, scientists went out to d- create the most dangerous Pokemon slash dinosaur, but the joke was on them. They succeeded. And it's an identical storyline. You know what, though? Actually, Pokemon is a good one because the setting of basically like you have these oh, little like yeah. sprites and you can like, like you catch them and then like they like are happy and you live together and they're kind of like super pets that have magic abilities. I don't know. That's actually that's a contender for uh setting be more that could be interesting. i agree and you know what else is great about pokemon is that it's simple enough for kids to follow so like the world building in that one is very well structured and very understandable for everyone i mean as an adult watching that i'm like what parent lets their 12 year old just leave home um to go collect but it's for kids kids want to feel like they're independent <laughs> i never understood they want to be the very best don't don't even i love that is like also top 10 theme songs for me i think pokemon silver oh yeah that guy belts it pokemon silver might be like my favorite game of all time (laughs) i don't know it's that or age of empires too (laughs) i didn't really play the pokemon video games until i was already old but i certainly played the cards and like watched the show when i was a kid oh yeah i played the the cards the game is like super addictive like crazy just there's no way to finish right because no. you're always just leveling up exactly. and then once you have one 
perfect Pokemon, you're like, well, I may as well have a perfect set of Pokemon. But there's your strange like, oh, attractor. Oh, well, the IVs on this one wasn't very good. Yeah. So what's the strange attractor in Pokemon? Well, it's a normal, it's like a kind of normal world, right? Like, mm. I, like it's obviously like pretty Japan-based. But like, you know, you got a house and parents, you walk around and the tech makes sense. You have a cell phone and like you, you, you go to towns and stuff. But like, there's also these animals that like are Pokemon and that's like pretty crazy. But all the things about them, like, I don't know, like it's pretty crazy, but there's enough to ground you in reality, I think. Totally. Right. Totally. You know, when we're talking about world building, I was also thinking a lot about Star Wars because that also is like that very simple hero's journey story. And I'm sure we're going to do an episode where we talk about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. But um, I remember the first time I saw a lightsaber, like that was life-changing for me. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, how are they ever going to top this? You know, Darth Maul coming out. No one remembers that. In the theater, oh, yeah. Darth Maul coming With out. With the double-sided and it's lightsaber? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm using the prequels as like a major inspiration for my current book nice with all the like nice. politics oh, really? and stuff okay the politics yeah yeah that's also I love the prequels because yeah. of the politics the politics are great i agree pat i think anyway i'm a prequels girl like that was my star wars generation um so yeah that was another that was another thing i was thinking about um who knows how an x-wing works but it's cool so i don't care do you know the whole Jar Jar Binks? I think they were gonna write him as the evil empire or emperor, and then uh, and then the fans hated him so much that they changed their mind and they made it the chancellor or whatever. I can't mm. remember what his name is, mm. but it makes sense. Like he just bumbles his way to be speaking in front of the whole of the Galactic Senate. That is crazy. Yeah, and he he's never really in danger. He's just making himself seem vulnerable so they'll take care of him. Do you know, actually, Lance, you were talking now that we're on Star Wars, which I mean, I could really talk about just forever, um, but I won't because I appreciate all of you and I love our listeners. Um, But a good example of where world building kind of took precedence over plot was maybe in the most recent Star Wars movies we had, the most recent trilogy, where they just kind of started with that one movie that did really well. And then they were like, okay, where do we go from here? And uh, they frigged it. They had, they had trouble, you know, paying off everything at the end. Oh, they totally so, blew it. Yeah, they blew it. Um, so uh, just a good reminder that even though things are super cool all the time in Star Wars, and I love watching them, you know, fight with lightsabers and stuff like that. Like you still have to have a coherent plot. You still have to have the, the big reveal and all of that fun stuff. You know, that's that's where the true magic is. But we love a good setting. I don't want people to feel down on setting like setting is just something mm. to happen in the background. It really shouldn't be. I think that the the intersection points between plot, character and setting are what make a good book great. Mm. And your setting like I mean, your setting. Your setting can enhance your plot and character arcs. Suppose you have a tide that a crazy tide that comes in at specific times or whatever. And then your final battle like takes place on that tide. And then something unexpected, but actually cool and foreshadowed happens involving that tide. I'm just making stuff up. 
And then your right when the character arcs are are peaking and the the max plot intrigue and reveals happen, right as you reveal the settings. My last in Two Moons Book One, the mystery of the setting is a big part of the book. And mm. what do the two moons do and how does everything happen? And and then the, this big magical ha- thing happens only because the setting allows for it under a specific set of circumstances, right? That are determined by the plot and the characters, but also by the setting. Uh, so the yeah. way I've made my settings relevant to the plot, I, I'm not I'm not sure how the best way to do this, the way I did it was make the setting a mystery. You throw it right at them and then say, well, we don't know why this happens. But it's going to be important, and we're going to discover why, and then you reveal that, and that's part of your, and that's part of yeah. your payoff. Yeah, it's kind of like how in Lord of the Rings they have to traverse um, their world. They have to like really interact with the setting because they're getting somewhere. You don't necessarily have that in all fantasy books, but yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking back to like what's great world building like i could never read a george r r martin book and walk i would always just walk away being hungry because like he talked about the food all the time and i loved it i lived for it like just hearing about what characters were eating or what was on their plates or you know it was just fantastic well why don't we get to our uh quick summary here and we can get to our notes this chapter is from Jordan's viewpoint. It starts with our main characters, Savin, Nadina, Mastim, and Jordan. They're walking to meet some stranded nobles, to uh, see book one for more information, to buy the only boat around for miles, which they absolutely need for their mission. And Savin and Mastim, as usual, are arguing. Jordan ponders silently, if Mastim is the vision sibling, the magical person that has access to certain powers, that and there's only two in the world, and Yurden's one of them, and another one, and he and Yurden suspects another one will be born of this same genetic population, of which Mastim is one. Yurden has a heart to heart with Mastim after the argument, who opens out about his self doubt about his decisions while leader. He's really down on himself. Yurden, who's always been able to cheer up characters, for once fails to cheer up Mastim. The heroes arrive at the meeting. And Jordan keeps wondering, could Mastim really be the Vision sibling? He has all the qualities that are required. Nadina explains to everyone before the meeting that they need a boat for the plan. And she summarizes the plan again. The noblewoman, at the, the noblewoman then arrives and negotiates. She sees that Mastim is the person that saved her and her whole household and recognizes that. But she doesn't recognize that he is actually Mastiff because she's never seen him face to face. So she knows she's that he, that's the man who saved her household, but she doesn't know it's also the man that condemned, the, that condemned them to death just days before. Jordan wonders, will Mastim reveal his name during this conflict point and ruin their negotiations? Or will he lie and do the unhonorable thing, but do what's right for their mission? As he's wondering this, Sabin doesn't give them the option. She jumps in, interrupts, gives her own lie, and seals the deal. Jordan wishes that he could have seen whether Mastim would have would have lied in service of the two moons. But Sabin's lie kind of ruined that. Afterwards, Sabin and Mastim argue a bit more after they have secured the boat. Mastim insults her and goes a little too far by pointing out that she failed to notice that a traitor was in her midst and was her general and counselor for 15 years. 
then the chapter ends right after Yordan, uh, right after Mastim delivers that insult. And immediately an interlude starts from Mastim's perspective at the same point in time. Mastim sees the look of defeat in Sabin's eyes and he feels bad. At, at the end of the day, he goes to see her in her tent to, and they uh, make up and, and, and put aside their differences because he sees that she alone understands the burden that he has, that he's had the burden of betrayal and the burden of having to make horrible decisions in a time of war. He confides in her that he thinks he's gone to, he's too far gone, too far beyond redemption. And any of his plans of redemption actually involve killing. And he doesn't feel good about that. Obviously Sabin then jumps up realizing something and tells him she has a plan, a way for him to redeem himself. And the chapter ends with the reader not knowing what that is. You want to go first, Jess? You can go first. Okay, right on. Um, so from like the first sentence, Jess sure nailed her hot take from two episodes ago. You said they were going to look for the new Vision sibling. And instantly Yurden's looking for it, like right in the first sentence. Um, I really liked Yurden's kind of justification, uh, which not only kind of like paints a picture of Mastum, but also of himself and how he sees himself. Um, and we have seen that like relentless drive from Mastim that kind of defines Yurden. Um, so that makes a lot of sense and definitely like was apparent in your first book. And now I'm going back and kind of thinking about your first book and seeing if I notice anything else that ties Mastim and Yurden together, which I didn't really think of them as similar characters at all before. Um, then, uh, so then, yeah, they have a conversation, which is another great, actually, sort of recap slash character development slash plot movement uh, scene. Like when you have Yurden and Mastim talking about um, whatever they're basically, Mast when he's trying to cheer up Mastim, but also Mastim accusing him of uh, whatever, pulling the trigger and, and trying to kill everybody which was ultimately his decision, but either way, um, good interaction. Um, oh, I got a, a couple of nitpicks and this is the first one. Uh, I don't, so you, you've changed the mountains into hills. I feel like there's gotta be like massive boulders and shit in their way. Like it's not like a, for a stroll through the hills, like there's going to be wreckage and you're like, absolutely they should right. be walking like all through the mud and crap. Like you're absolutely right. I have to address that. And I can easily address that, I think, in just a couple of sentences or one sentence. I, but I have to, I have to address it so the reader knows I've seen it. You're right. Um, yeah, you could have like it be swept over with sand from the from the big tide, and that would kind of solve that problem. Um, basically, yeah, turn it into a desert or something. Uh, oh, the scene with the woman mistake the noble mistaking Mastum. That was really good. Um, really, yeah, like a little interesting dynamic with the dram dramatic irony, right? That's what that is. Uh, and uh, I think one thing, though, you maybe pointed out too many times that Yurden was trying to see if Mastin would lie. I I got it. And then by the time you said it like the fourth time, I, I was like, okay, I know this is important. Like, move on. So I think you could take out one or two. If maybe if Jess feels the same, thing, good. otherwise. 
Um, and then, yeah, we switched to Mastim's perspective. Um, I like that look of defeat, that whole paragraph of talking about, like, seen it in my eyes of my opponents. I've seen it in here. And anyways, that was great. Um, oh, and my second nitpick, eight stone is, like, 100 pounds or 120 pounds or Isn't something. Isn't a stone 14? Oh, yeah, you're right. I thought a stone was 30 pounds, but it's 14. I, I think know. eight stone is small. Like I feel like I'm way way more than that. Yeah, no, I was shooting for two hundred forty for two forty. So no, that's way more I think than you eight double stone. sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, or twenty or yeah, something. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Oh, okay. My last point. Uh, so the the consoling from Massim to Sabin was super effective, and and like saying like I literally did almost exactly the same as you. Like some one of my most trusted people ended up betraying me, but then I think when you came back the other way you could have done the exact same thing because Sabin also like uh, basically attempted to commit genocide. So they have the same faults going both ways. She's like, well, I can see like how you hate those people and, and blame. And like, I've done the same thing or she could at least like say like, yeah, sorry. I like lied to that terrible woman or like, she you're, could you're right. kind of sympathize with him there. I was, I would think I was trying to go too fast because in a real situation like that, he's like, what was me? I'm terrible. I tried to kill all these people and all this stuff. And Sabin's just like, yep, you're terrible. Let's move on. Whereas in reality, she's like, well, I actually killed all those people too. And I'm terrible. And I started a war and all this blah, blah, blah too. Um, and also those people are bad. Like he is like, he goes too far, but, at the end of the day, like those people are even the sick and innocent of them are still like profiteering off of an unjust system that he's learning about for the first time. So he still hates those people either way. He does. Yeah. Yeah. You, you squeezed a lot in there. That was good. Um, that's it for me. Thank you. Okay. I really like this section because I thought it was a lot of character building moments and I, I'm really enjoying your characters, Lance, like I always have. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed this section. And then, so we come to Yurden. Could it be Mastim? So you start off your section with Yurden. Could it be Mastim? That sent chills down my spine. I was like, oh my gosh, is that him? And I kind of rebelled against that thought because I don't think it's him. Maybe that's a hot take. But there, I was resisting that a little bit, but I was like, ooh, very interesting. I have to say, Yordan is one of my favorite characters. And I think because their motivation is so different, they have such different priorities to every other person. I, I mean, with the same passion as a person that wants to rule or have stability, you know, but what they want is so far beyond the realm of what any of us would experience, you know, that religious zealotry. I just love it. I'm, I'm so into people and characters who are not motivated by the typical human things. Cause I think that makes them very interesting. I don't think Mastim is the lost sibling. I think I just said that, but I wrote that down in my notes and because I think it might be a little bit too early for that reveal or there has to be another reveal there. I could be wrong. Um, I think also it hit me how much Mastim has changed from when we first saw him 
in the book and just a complete loss of innocence and someone who's really struggled. So I thought that was good. He's acting different because he is different. He is angry. He's traumatized. He's acting in a way that anyone who has been what he's been through would act. So that was ringing true for me. When Mastim and Yurden were speaking, it was also a good framing device here because Yurden is getting to know everyone and we're seeing people through Yurden's eyes, which in my mind might be a little bit less biased than other people because Yurden's not so concerned with like worldly things. So it's just really interesting to see how he sees people. And I liked that perspective. And although Mastim is you know, following the lead of Nadina and Sabin and everyone that wants this plan to work. It's very clear that perhaps the nobles that have survived didn't necessarily deserve to survive. So there's good conflict there because, you know, when people are really bad in stories, we like to think that they deserve a certain fate, but they're not always given the fate that they deserve. And, you know, what a gut punch to have to sit there across from people who are insulting him and just behaving so terribly. And we know what they did, you know, to his people. And yeah, I, I just thought that was really good conflict in that moment. A word that came up a lot, and I think this is a promise, and maybe this promise was paid off in this section, but I want to talk about that later. Mastin will need to learn mercy. And the working title right now is Two Moons Mercy. So like, whenever that word comes up, my ears are burning because I'm thinking, okay, there's something here. There's something here that's tied to the plot that's important. So Yurden says that that's something that Mastim is going to need to learn. But maybe it's something that they all have to learn. But my antennae were up for that. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree... I agree with Sabin and sometimes like over personal slights, the good of everyone in the plan has to take precedence. So I thought that was fair on her part, you know, trying to rescue the plot from going under. So I actually ended up agreeing with her, but I feel I, it's not like I'm unsympathetic to Mastim. Okay. So Mastim says something rude to Sabin that he knows right away he's hurt her feelings. And then he goes and he apologizes and they become closer and they have a good conversation. And she says, I know how you can redeem myself. Uh, Sorry, how you can redeem yourself. I'm just wondering if you've given that up too quickly, if the apology has come too quickly or if that can be saved for later for just maybe a little bit of a bigger payoff but you know this is a tight plot and we're moving forward so like I didn't think it was so out of place but part of me was like you know they really don't like each other they're really not seeing eye to eye you know maybe there's something under the surface where they respect each other they don't actually want to hurt each other's feelings and if they just got to know each other a little bit better they would have this really great relationship but to keep that simmering for a little bit longer might have a better payoff at the end. So maybe just something for you to consider. That's like really a second draft problem, but I wanted to bring it up. Mastim seems to be very important to this story. And don't be afraid to take your time with that and the, and the character arc. Um, 
I really thought Nadina was the most important person. And that was based on the first book. So it'll be interesting to see all these like very important people deking it out for who's going to be kind of the number one person at the end. I guess the most important person is the vision sibling. But yeah, so um, those were kind of my thoughts. Well done. I enjoyed it this week. Awesome. Thank you. I had one more one more thing I forgot to say. You reminded me of it when you were saying that you like Yurden's perspective. Um, I really liked the narration around Yurden's perspective, like noticing like the waves and and uh, you never you often like describe your setting by people literally describing it like in dialogue, but I feel like you rarely actually. Um, take a, like a few sentences to do that. So I think maybe that was something that you were trying to put with Yurden's perspective. Is that right? It was. And I'm as usual, when I'm working on setting, when I'm doing anything with setting, I'm trying to do double duty with something else because I don't want to, I'm scared of boring, boring the reader if I'm doing just setting. So that way I, I have Yurden talk. I think it, that's where Yurden talks about the, the waves at his, at, at the waves at home at Duncan Island. And how they look the same mm-hmm. as the yeah, waves. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the part, yeah. Yeah, so you're kind of like, it's a book too. So you got to remember, like, oh, this guy just walked halfway across the world. Just remembering that, you know, there's two right. moon convergences. They're opposite on each other's worlds and all the stuff. So, but okay, that's, I'm really glad that worked. That worked well. Um, yeah, well, that was some, that was awesome. Uh, really good comments. So, um Thank you for both of you. Um, you know that you both know that what I think my week uh, that, that I want to work the most on my characters. Uh, I think that I'm always worried that my characters are not super interesting. Uh, and it's not that I think they're bad, but I just, I just, I know I put more work into my plot than my characters. So I'm glad to hear that you like the character development um, in this. I was worried. Was this chapter boring? No, definitely not boring. I like, yeah. I, I agree. I, I, I don't know either. which part you would even say is boring. Okay, sweet. Well, because I think like in a vacuum, if I like when I was like rereading the when I was like writing up my notes for the summary, I was like, oh, it's just people walking and talking. And I was like, yeah, that's fine, though. As long as the conversation is I was like, well, it should be okay because the conversation itself is like. I think is interesting and the character development. Stuff, oh, so. not really. I mean, I, you have like they're arguing and yeah. then also um Negotiation. You have like the negotiation and everything. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And the hidden identity. I like dialogue heavy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, I love dialogue too. I love it. Well, you know, one day I'll ask Pat to do a dialogue talk because I think Pat's dialogue is just the best. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'll do it for my next one. We've been over that a billion times. I don't have to think of my next one. (laughs) 12 times last year i told pat how good his dialogue was every single time each of the 12 parts i was like oh right, dialogue's the best all right next next part also is going to be mostly dialogue to you sweet so that's perfect um yeah and then so okay so i was thinking okay so just what you said i actually worried about that i worried about that specifically did i i, I was like i did i pay off too did i let massim and sabin reconcile too fast i made a point of them arguing a ton in the first chapter mm. outside of their argument i had a, another character miramat say um oh good the like when they're 
the two people are arguing and then the new people show up and Miramat is like, oh good, the rest of the people have showed up. Looks like you won't have time to kill each other today. <laughs> it's just like, oh my goodness. It's, I'm trying to push this idea that they're actually arguing for a week straight. The whole time they've actually known each other in real life is just arguing the whole time. In this chapter, I've opened the chapter with an argument. I close the chapter with an argument. Like I'm trying to push that argument the whole time because I know I'm paying it off too fast. I know I'm letting them off the hook okay. way too fast. And I was actually worried about that. That's why I like hammered it so hard. Okay. Could you let them partially off the hook and be like, maybe only one of them apologizes and the other one is holding fast. Or maybe like they kind of uh, partially apologize. Like you have masked him like bring up his betrayal, but not actually in a way that he's apologizing, but in a way that it's obvious that he's letting her off the hook a tiny bit. I think this is a textbook draft two problem because I agree. Yeah. My, my, like I actually, you know, I was really listening to one of the recent podcasts and Pat, you said, I don't know how people could write on a typewriter. I rewrite every sentence three times. And I was thinking, Pat, we should get you typewriter. You can fix those sentences (laughs) later. You write like 10 times faster. You you would have so many books published. (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I'm, I never go back. I never rewrite. Um, so it was funny when Jess said, I read your section twice. I was like, oh, that's more times than I've read it. Um, it was not true, <laughs> not true. But um, when I go, like, that's usually I'll read like the page before, before I start writing. And like, if I find, when I find obvious stuff, I just clean it up, but I don't, I don't actually edit. Um, yeah, Pat, your nitpicks are a hundred percent true. And this is one of those things where like, like, it's true. Like, can I really can I really clean up a path through 12 miles of mountains, which is what 19 kilometers for our metric listeners. Um, like, can I really clean up a path yes, in 12 miles in one week? Well, I don't know, but as long you as I do talk it about in it, one sentence, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do it in one sense. As long as I may do something plausible, like it'd be like, well, good thing that this one path mostly survived. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, Oh, we, our scouts got oh, a new path or something. Listen, I love it when people do that in books and I notice it just because I'm a writer, but like, I just, I just love that so much. Like when you're like, oh yes. Okay. This is a question I had in my mind. Like, I wonder if people notice that stuff. For sure. For really, sure at they the end do. Of the day. Yeah. They well, do. Okay. I think it's more, if you don't bring it up, you'll be like, wait a minute. Like Pat said, like we're in a mountain range. Like the, like it's, it's like the Pyrenees. That's the way I think of it. Cause I, I went in the Pyrenees and like, I measured the thinnest point of the Pyrenees and it was like. I think this was, I think it was a Pyrenees. I was like, it was 12 miles. And I was like, okay, because I needed them to be able to cross the mountain range in like a certain, like a reasonable amount of time. Uh, oh, another thing for world building, make sure your walking distances like more or less make sense. You know, don't, oh, don't, don't yes. like burn yourself out over it or anything, but it's like, they walk 200 miles in one day. It's like, I don't think so, man. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> so I was like, so I, I, I'm, I measured the, so anyway, it's like, imagine like if you took this huge chunk of the Pyrenees and then just reduce them to rubble. And now we're asking people to walk through that. You're right. I need to address that because that's just crazy. The uh, the best for like hand wave solutions is Futurama. They're like, oh, but you didn't consider the doom factor. And then like, there you go. Fine. But no problem. <laughs> I'm back or, in. Uh, I'm back in. Yeah. Or same with... Uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy like yeah it was the quantum such and such and then okay cool yeah whatever you know life is so much easier now that scientists invented magic that's from future <laughs> oh yeah that's in future is it 
the magic thing like in world building anyway you know what it is always just good to plan your world building or else you end up like stephanie mayor mayor whatever her name is and like you're doing your world building like three books in and then you're like but everything you wrote in the first book it doesn't make sense time you know in (laughs) and i love twilight that's like not a knock and also you know she's now a billionaire so like good for her and I will never be at that level, but still, you know, it's, it is nice to plan your world building. Like I was having this issue with my own book that I wrote before this, where I was like, let me write a book with magic. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is really hard. Like, it's hard to write that. I should have spent more time. Is she on- really a billionaire? Do you think? Oh yeah. I don't know. I think she has a lot of money. You, Cause a billion dollars is a billion's a lot. That's how much LeBron has. Do, okay. Actually, do you want to know how much Stephanie Mayer yeah, is quick worth? Google. She can't yeah, be worth yeah, more than LeBron. And then after that hot takes, we got it. We're running out of time, but billion, a billion dollars is a lot. That'd be sweet. Spicy though. I mean, people. like <laughs> I'm going to write a vampire book. That's probably hasn't been saturated okay. yet. Right. No, guys, she's not a billion dollars. She's worth $120 million, which is a pretty good amount, I would say, still, for uh, being an author that wrote a bunch of vampire books. Like, pretty awesome. More than Jay Cutler and yeah, less than Phil okay. Collins. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, hot takes. Um I was. I also said for a hot take that I don't think it's Mastum. Um, and you gave us the little clue about Nadina. So my antennas were up for that little clue where you said, uh, "Oh, Nadina, if she was just born under the two moons, you know, or in the right know, region." But she's not. She's not. She's not Sabaran. She's not a Sabaran person. Yeah, but we're we are missing details about her backstory. We are. That that is true. We are missing details. And it would make it would make sense that her like her family is heading the cabal so they or what certainly part of the head so they maybe that's how they know about it very interesting and i had another hot take but i can't remember jessica if you have oh my god like you stole my hot take my hot take obviously was that mastim is not the vision sibling um who do you but think it is though? i th- oh god i re- i really think it's nadina i really think so but I think she. But my other hot take was that Nadine is going to sacrifice herself. But maybe it's right. now going to be Mastim that will sacrifice themselves, or like at the very last minute they'll be like, "Oh my God, it's not Mastim, it's someone else." Anyway, that's a big extrapolation, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. I remember my other hot take now. Um, the so the double identity with Mastim um, pretending to be the soldier or whatever, it was actually quadruple mistaken identity. And the noble was the duchess. Whoa! Oh, man. Oh, man. That's, That's really, not We true. don't know exactly where she is. I didn't plan it that way. That's not what I was going for. It's but true that's now, though. Cool. It's like, oh, dude, that's one of those you hear it and you're like, should I derail my whole story to do that? Yes. Don't do that. don't derail our whole like, story. <laughs> like they arrive, no, at the, they arrive at the heist and it's just like, and it's like a scarecrow. <laughs> it's like, who's the, where's the duchess? She's on that island. <laughs> what? No, then they both recognize each other for who they really are. You know the they Spider-Man look, they, meme where they're pointing they lock to each eyes other? Like, oh. oh, yeah. You know the Spider-Man right. meme they're pointing to each other? It's like, what? <laughs> 
Oh, that was a good episode, guys. That's all we have for today. If you want to find, if you want to do the homework for next week's episode, you will be able to find some of our latest work posted on patreoncom podcast. We are also WGBCP on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and remember to just keep reading. Boom. Why would they want to skip our ads? They're Polar useful. Coffee. <laughs> Ooh, coffee I wanna... Realtors. Next time I bump into Kev, because I haven't even talked to him about putting those episodes out. I told him recently. I, I want him to be like, oh, yeah. I, I want I him to tell him. us that his coffee business is going great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and he had his first uh, sale that wasn't through word of mouth. He had his first, like, random sale on his website for, like, some random person. And I was like, oh, nice. Podcast. It's the podcast. That's probably the podcast. <laughs> Ask if it was from Estonia. Ask if they're selling to Estonia. <laughs> Do we have an Estonian oh, listener? It, are the Estonians enjoying it? We us? have an Estonian listener, yeah. Sick. I think That's they must awesome. be uh Okay, let's shout out Estonia. Reddit, um, right, what is it? Circle jerk? Writing circle jerk? Something oh, like that. Sure.